Premier Clark, can I still call you Premier Clark? Is that how this works? <laughs> you can call me whatever you're comfortable with. <laughs> <laughs> this is Van Collar. We're at the West Coast. My name is Mo Amir, and today on This Is Van Color, I am joined by another dream guest. She is currently a senior advisor for Bennett Jones LLP, while she either advises or sits on the boards of several corporate and non-profit organizations across the country, including Shaw Communications and Roots of Empathy. For over two decades, she has been at the center of public life in British Columbia, a member of the BC's Legislative Assembly, a political commentator, a true trailblazer. You can also credit her for bringing the Pink Shirt Day anti-bullying campaign to BC. You know her, of course, as the first woman to be elected premier in British Columbia, the 35th premier of this great province of ours. She is, of course, Christy Clark. Premier Clark, how are you? I'm great, Mo. How are you? I'm so good. I'm actually pinching myself. It's a little surreal talking to you. <laughs> I, well, it shouldn't be. I'm sorry I couldn't come down in person, it's, but it's so nice to hear you live. It's a strange time, but we'll have to do it next time. Yes, I'd be delighted to do it a second time. Well, let's see how this one goes. Actually, you know what, Mo? Let's see how this one goes. <laughs> well, thank you for being here. Let's talk about someone else who wants to be premier. Let's talk about Andrew Wilkinson. Sure. I like the guy. He's been here a couple times on the podcast. We've made the news every time, actually. But I think even as BC Attorney General David Eby has said on this program, it's a challenge to keep together this large tent party that is the BC Liberals, something that perhaps you made look very easy. Now, Mr. Wilkinson has had a few gaffes, the wacky comment about renting, the tough marriage comment. He's having a headache with MLA Lori Thronis right now, as the BC Liberals were just kicked out of participating in the Vancouver Pride Parade. Your former press secretary, Stephen Smart, called him out on CKNW for comments that he made on this very podcast. So I have to ask you, is Andrew Wilkinson the right guy to lead the BC Liberals into an election? Well, I think he is. And, you know, more importantly, BC Liberal members think he was. I mean, they voted him in. And that's, you know, when our parties make a choice, mm -hmm. um, I would say, I mean, I'm 100% supporting Andrew, and I think he's going to make a terrific premier. But I would say to anybody who wants to be critical of him, you know, he's the guy that our party chose. And um, I, well, I got elected in 2011 as the premier. Um, you know, I, I took over. That's the way the system works, right? You, I didn't, I didn't take time out to, to run an election from opposition first. Mm -hmm. And I I inherited a caucus where only one person had supported me. And I tell you, most of the, I walked into that room and not like almost all the MLAs did not support me. Lots of them really didn't want me there. They've mm -hmm. been very active, very vocal. It had been a very divisive leadership campaign and, you know, it wasn't easy, but you know what they remembered ultimately over time was, look, our party elects a leader and it's our job 
as people who represent our party, whether we're, uh, you know, in the kind of leadership amongst the, on the membership party side, or we're leadership in the caucus side to get behind the leader. Cause that's who our, that's who our members chose. And mm-hmm. we are subservient. We are secondary to the decisions of our members in when it comes to who the leader is going to be. Well, let's talk about being subservient to who the leader is going to be. Hypothetically, if you were still the leader of the BC Liberals, would you have kicked Laurie Thronis out of caucus because he disobeyed effectively a mandate that you set out? You know, I have to say, um, Laurie Thronis and I don't agree on issues with respect to gay marriage, mm-hmm. um, the inclusion of LGBTQ community in lots of other areas of society. And we certainly, certainly don't agree on a, a right, a woman's right to choose, which I am extremely passionate about as a feminist, mm-hmm. you know, I, I always loved working with Lori and uh, when it came time to put, um, you know, it was really, it was symbolic, but very important, right? Symbolic symbols are very important to put transgender protections into um, our human rights code. Lori didn't oppose it and didn't fight it. And he, you know, and I, so for me, I found working with Lori pretty easy. Um, and we just, we found a way around things on which we disagreed, and I always found at the end of the day, Lori would be, would find a way to get along inside the caucus. You know, the thing, the other thing though that I learned, you know, and I maybe it's just because I'm getting older, you know, it. Um, but I, when I became the leader of the BC Liberals, Mo, I didn't. Mm. Well, maybe maybe not before, but before I ran for politics, I honestly didn't know anybody who was an evangelical Christian. Mm. And I had a lot of ideas about what that was all about. And then I got to know folks like Stockwell Day and Lori Thronas and Rich Coleman, people who had been, um, you know, engaged in kind of, in, you know, in politically active faith that was where, whose political goals were very different from my own on some of those social issues. Mm-hmm. And I, I discovered that those folks have a lot to offer to public life too. And, you know, we agreed to disagree and they accepted my leadership on all of those issues. No, we are not rolling back laws on abortion. No, we are not rolling back laws and rights for LGBTQ community. In fact, mm-hmm. we're going to extend those rights um, as often as we can. But, you know, and, and they said, okay, because let's agree on the things that are really important here that we can do. And I always found Lori fell into that category for me. And these folks, meeting these folks, working with folks like Rich Coleman, profoundly changed my understanding of the contribution that people who have very different views from me on those social issues that they can make, you know, and I don't think we should write people off and stop talking to people because we disagree on a few things. I think that's a big problem in our world today. I think setting aside perhaps your personal relationship with Laurie Thronis, maybe he's a, a great person to work with. Maybe he's a, you know, Great man. There's there's nothing I, I have to say to the contrary, but just looking at the situation where as the leader comes out and says there's no room for homophobia or transphobia in our party, and then the next day you have someone within caucus coming out and actually endorsing conversion therapy, which is seen by a lot of people as homophobic. Is that an offense to kick someone out of caucus? Well, setting aside your personal yeah, relationships yeah. with these people. Yeah. Well, I would say, I mean, it's certainly, I, I, I can't make that decision anymore. And I'm not, it, it's a decision for the caucus to make whether mm-hmm. or not who they want to be a member of their group and caucus okay. discipline is really important. You know, I, but I would say, I don't think, I think con- conversion therapy is homophobic. 
Mm-hmm. I mean, there's no question about that in my mind. I don't think it's, it could be seen that way. It is that way. Mm-hmm. Um, and, you know, I, I don't, I honestly, Mo, I haven't seen the coverage of the story today, so I don't know exactly what was said. But if, um, you know, if, if someone was to tell me that they supported that, I would say, well, I think that's, I think that's a, a homophobic view. Mm-hmm. Let's move on to one of the biggest BC political stories since the BC NDP took power. And that's how possibly billions of dollars, including foreign inflows of capital, were laundered through casinos, real estate, and other instruments over the past decade, which may have affected housing prices and the fentanyl poisoning crisis. What is your take on the BC NDP initiating a public inquiry into money laundering? Do you think it's necessary? Well, I think I think it's going to do some good work. Yeah. I mean, I think that I was surprised at the extent to which the federal government has dropped the ball on this. And, we, mm-hmm. you know, I remember when I was premier, we talked to the federal government frequently about this because they have, you know, it through FinTrack, the the finance, the kind of the legislation that's supposed to be tracking how money gets spent and deposited and look for unusual deposits and spending um, through the banks in Canada. Um, and through CSIS, they're supposed to be monitoring this. And what we've discovered is that they haven't been doing their job. They've mm-hmm. really, the RCMP through CSIS has really let Canadians down on this. And it's, it was, you know, I remember having those discussions with the federal government um, toward the end of my term and it was, you know, there wasn't a lot of uptake on there. And so I think that the commission, uh, Justice Collins commission is going to take us some way to understanding that better. The other thing that I noticed um, that I saw today was that, you know, there's the RC, the federal government is say, basically saying, yeah, they don't have any statistics on this at all, even though they're the ones that are supposed to have been gathering the information. Sure. So I think, you know, I don't know that the Cullen Commission is going to be able to get all those, all that information, all the information that they'll need in the period of time they have. But mm. I think it's going to, they're going to prod the feds and the RCMP into getting their job done. If you were still premier, would this be something that perhaps interested you in terms of initiating a public inquiry? Yeah, well, I think, you know, there's lots of different vehicles you could use for it. I mean, I think cert- I, I think it's wise to get out and start looking at what's going on out there. I think that the mm. work that's been done so far, I mean, the previous report uh, that came out, um, suggested that, you know, if you look at the numbers, that there was more money laundering happening in Saskatchewan than there is in Vancouver, which is, I think, a little hard to believe, right? So it yeah. kind of gives you gives you a feel for how wide off the mark some of this work has been. We really do need the work to get done. And we, you know, an inquiry, you know, it's got its upsides and downsides kind of as a tool for getting this done. But one of the things it's going to do is it's going to prod the federal government to start really doing its job in this area. Because, mm-hmm. you know, the, we need to understand the extent of the problem, first of all, in order to figure out how we're going to do a better job of managing it. And if the federal government, which has responsibility for managing it, doesn't want to manage it, then provinces are going to have to figure out how to do that themselves. Now, Port Coquitlam Mayor Brad West on this very podcast, this is what he's saying. He said that you and your government turned a blind eye to money laundering, and he went so far as to accuse you of dereliction of duty. What is your response to that? Well, I mean, I have, Mo, my response 
my my at the, off the mark is uh, Brad West is a you know he's a very very political guy a very partisan guy and I'm not you know really partisan anymore so I take it for what it is which is you know he wants to I think make his mark in politics um, and uh, you know it's so I'll I'll let he, I'll leave that with him but what I would say is um, you know from our perspective we did go after the federal government regularly asking them to do more uh, to pick up their duties and do more about this. Mm -hmm. Um, We certainly did through the BC Lottery Corporation and through, you know, working with the RCMP in British Columbia, the police forces in British Columbia, try and get a handle on what was happening with money laundering in the province and working with casinos, some of whom were very, very cooperative on this stuff because they don't want the crime to happen on, on their work sites either. Um, so, no, it's not true. It's not backed up by any of the facts. I mean, I think it's just politics, right? So I think you're going to, I think you're going to expect that from a very, very ambitious young political operative like Brad. Well, I wanted to give you a chance to respond to that since he did say that here. You know, Mo, if I had to respond to all of the things that people are saying, that still say about me, um, <laughs> This would be a really long interview. <laughs> Just one more, and then and then we'll move okay, on to other okay. things. Okay. So in February, Attorney General David Eby said that he'd like to see you testify in the public inquiry. Have you been contacted at all by the Cullen Commission? No, I haven't. Um, um, and, um, you know, I do think, I, I think what he said was he wanted to see me and several other people up on the stand. I and you know, so, yeah. you know what that, re- I mean, the thing about that, Mo, and I will respond to it is I do think that um, it's really um, kind of, a, it's just really a drive by smear, right? It's kind of a classic political drive by. And I, and I do think, you know, lots of politicians are going to do stuff like that, but I, I've, it's very unusual for the attorney general, the person who is responsible for upholding the law Mm -hmm. um, to engage in that kind of, in that kind of stuff. So, you know, a lot of previous attorneys general have kind of held themselves to a a higher standard of discourse than that. I would say. Do you think it was irresponsible of him to say that? Well, I don't think it's great for, you know, to be smearing folks. Right. I don't think it's um, really helpful. Um, to, to attract people into the political process, if that's what they think they're going to get, right? Mm-hmm. I, I do think, I, I, I worry a lot, Mo, about the um, the lowering of political discourse and civic discourse in Canada and around the world, that it's just become kind of name-calling and blaming. And, you know, there's, there's not a lot of, um, there isn't enough, intellectual that's intellectually challenging that happens in political discourse anymore and just a lot of yelling and screaming and it's been getting worse and worse every year and i will say i mean on the day that i saw the speech from aoc in the states Mm -hmm. um it's it is harder for women i mean Mm -hmm. the the sexist narrative that women have to uh, live with in politics the constant quiet kind of um bashing of women uh, is is getting worse as well. I don't know if you saw what she said. I did, uh, yeah. And I'd like to get into that just a little bit towards the end. I do have okay. some questions about that because I know you've been very vocal in the past about sexism in the political sphere. I want to talk about China. When you were premier, 
you led a big provincial effort to open up trade and investment with China. You definitely brought in a lot of capital for certain sectors of the BC economy. The federal government was also courting massive investment from China. But now we kind of see a tide turning with the China-Canada relationship. Michael Spavor and Michael Kovrig are wrongfully imprisoned. United Front groups have used a federal cabinet minister's WeChat channel to fund a targeted campaign against global Sam Cooper. We have the harassment of Canadian citizens within our own borders. There was the detention and harassment of your own deputy speaker Richard Lee in China. And of course, this doesn't mention the million-plus Uyghurs that China has detained and is apparently sterilizing in re-education camps. What went wrong with the hopeful promise of cooperation and mutual benefit between Canada and China? I don't think it's just between Canada and China. I think that the idea of the, that great promise uh, that um, we all believed in for a long time—I mean, for since the gosh, since the late seventies—that mm-hmm. um, liberalism that we would be able to that through capitalism and through trade we would be able to change people, governments. Um, behavior to its own citizens and improve their human rights records has not proven itself to be true. It just Mm -hmm. hasn't. Now, um, so I think, I think it was, it was a partially failed experiment. um, But I do think it has in China, certainly it's been, it hasn't, you know, with new president Xi and the new direction that China's taken since he's become uh, the leader has been really um, disappointing on the human rights front. No question, worse than disappointing on no question about that. Mm-hmm. But I do, but I do think there are lots of other examples around the world of where trade and really trade with a view to um, growing the wealth of the population, lifting people out of poverty and, mm-hmm. Global trade, there's no doubt about it, that globalization, um, that trade, the internationalization of trade has lifted more people out of poverty than ever in human history. There is a smaller proportion of people who live in absolute poverty now than ever before in our history as a human race. So that's pretty good. So there's lots of good things about it, but I wouldn't say, I would say that in China, it hasn't had the impact that we'd hoped it had. I would say though that the Chinese uh, investment you know, in Canada and foreign investment in Canada is really vital because we, of, you know, of all the nations in the world that depend on trade for jobs, Canada is the fourth most reliant because mm-hmm. we have a small economy with, uh, with not a lot of people small population and without, without a really uh, we're not part of a, a, a truly global trade pact like the EU is, for example, for some of which really benefits the smaller countries that are in it. So foreign investment is hugely important for workers in our province. And one of the reasons we had the highest level of employment in history when I was a premier and the reason that we had the fastest growing economy and um, the fastest job growth rate was partly because we'd worked so hard to attract investment from other countries, not just from China, but from around the world, because that investment is new money coming into the economy, creating new opportunities. People go and you know, work at those jobs, they become entrenched long-term opportunities for people, and then that's how economies grow. Yeah. It's really, you can't just recycle money within Canada and think that's <laughs> going to work. And as I said, you know, you did do a great job in opening up trade and investment, which certainly boosted a lot of sectors in BC while you were premier. I guess just acknowledging that 
hindsight is twenty twenty, and as, as you said, that promise seems to be broken or, or failed. Did the increasing economic ties with China this past decade come at high cost, be that a moral cost or the cost of interference in our democracy? Uh, you know, I don't. I don't think there's a good. I don't think there's an answer to that. I wouldn't. Um, I don't think our democracy is being. Um, I think our democracy is being far uh, is being undermined much more by the tone of the discussion and the nature of politics south of the border. To be honest mm. with you, I think that's been a. I think that's been a devastating cultural change for political dialogue around the world. I think it's lowered the president. President Trump's approach to uh, political dialogue has lowered the dialogue everywhere, and mm. incivility has become the norm. And so, I, you know, I, and when I think about threats to democracy, I would say maybe that's not a threat to democracy, but it's certainly a threat to our civil discourse. Yeah. Um, and then, you know, further than that, I mean, we can look at pe- folks like the Russians and the Chinese and foreign actors all around the world um, that are that are uh, intervening purposefully in our election processes. Um, and that's regardless of whether or not we trade with them. Mm-hmm. They have an interest in upsetting democratic governments all around the world because they're not pro-democracy. And I wouldn't I don't know that that's necessarily a trade issue. I believe the the phrase that I used, I might have misspoke, but I meant to say interference in our democracy because that was the language that MLA Richard Lee had used. Mm-hmm. Last part on China. Did you know about his eight-hour detention in Shanghai in 2015? Yeah, I did. I did. I knew that he had a, I knew that it was, um, he was, he'd had a tough time over there. And, um, you know, but that's it's Richard's story, right? So it's up to Richard to tell that story. Right. I'm just wondering, what do you do when that story is told to you and relayed to you? What happens then? I think it's terrible. Like, I think, you know. But did you have to go to the federal government, federal government agencies and talk to them? What what happened? Well, I I, I don't I think what Richard did is Richard handled it. He he wanted to deal with it on his own on um, and uh, rather than through any government channels. And, um, I, you know, I just, it's, it is wrong that any Canadian should be held up, should be detained in a country with whom we have regular uh, trade ties and mm-hmm. regular travel when we ship, when there's so many citizens, Chinese citizens who share a Canadian citizenship. I mean, we have deep and long ties between these two countries sure. and to, to detain a Canadian citizen, whatever their position for no apparent reason is absolutely unacceptable. Did you, know, you know? I should, I should sorry. say that Richard, Richard Lee did more as a Chinese Canadian um, in our legislature to support um, the Canadians of Chinese descent mm-hmm. than just about anybody until until Theresa Watt came along and joined mm-hmm. him. That he was really really focused on on that. And he was focused on maintaining ties back across the Pacific, which was so important for creating jobs in BC. Did you know that his phone was in possession of the Chinese authorities for hours? Was that information privy to you? No, I didn't know that. Okay. I didn't know that, yeah. Because that was one of the big issues, right, of 
national security. Again, he was the deputy speaker. I don't know what information they could have got, but that was one of the things in that story that came out. You know what I would say, like just reflecting on that um, in general, Mm -hmm. whenever, whenever a Canadian parliamentarian travels to China, the advice that they receive from the federal government is to be quite cautious about access to your phone and your computers and and those mm. kinds of things because you know recognizing that china doesn't operate on the same democratic principles and the rights to privacy that canadians are used to sure i want to get into now the the topic you sort of touched on earlier two years ago you described politics as brutally sexist in a uh, very insightful and and somewhat lengthy facebook post Over your career, you were objectified at times, you were scrutinized for your clothing, you were subject to gendered language, and I should say derogatory gendered language. And I don't think that there's any question that women have it harder in politics than men. Certainly you are evidence to that. When you wrote that Facebook post, you specifically discussed frat boy behavior. Now. Understanding that, unfortunately, sexism and misogyny exists in many spheres of life, is there something particular to politics that makes it brutally sexist compared to your time in media and now your time working with corporate and nonprofit organizations? I think there. I think yes. It is the fact that there aren't enough women in politics around the table, and there aren't enough women in media. That, I mean, that ultimately what happens is male politicians um, have, have total permission mm-hmm. to say whatever they want about women. And, and it's always in veiled terms. I mean, the misogyny is a little bit more veiled than it is a lot more veiled than it used to be. And then they, you know, the, the provincial, the media, let them get away with it. Like that's mm-hmm. the, that's the way it works. And, um, you know, Mo, I, I, um, I don't, I don't, you know, it was always surprising to me that it came from New Democrats because, you know, you would, one would think they would be better about those things than, than anybody else in other political parties, but they weren't. Um, And uh, the media really let them get away with it. And why does the media let them get away with it? The same reason everybody gets away with it in all spheres of life is because until very recently, we, we just have never called, we've never been able to call men on these things. I mean, the Me Too, Me Too movement was a watershed moment for people. Mo, I couldn't believe it. You know, like most women, and I'm sure most women who listen to your podcast, most of the women, if you talk to women who are probably over 35 um, that you know personally, they will tell you stories about sexual harassment that has been constant and pervasive sure. from the time they were 12 years old Yeah, in every environment. And, you know, I have gotten, I had gotten so used to it, to the name calling, to the sexist language, to the sexual harassment, that I had just kind of thought, I don't think this is ever going to end. Like, I don't know how we're going to change this unless we just get more of us into places of power where mm-hmm. we don't allow it to happen anymore. Then Me Too comes along and those brave young women, millennials and Gen Zs, who said, you know what? this isn't happening anymore to us <laughs> yeah. and they stood up and they, they really made a difference. I, I, I never thought I would, I never, honestly, Mo, I never thought I would see that in my lifetime. I just think it's mm. incredible. And that's why people like AOC 
I don't agree with her on most of her political stuff, but you know, <laughs> I wouldn't see you as ideological partners, no, but you know what? I just, I admire her willingness to just be fearless and say, this isn't happening to us anymore. I'm sure. not, I'm going to stand up and I'm going to call it what it is. And it's like the black lives matter movement, people standing up and saying, we are calling this what it is. And we're, we're not standing by and letting it happen anymore. And for women, um, I'm really hopeful that this is going to change things. And I hope that it will mean that, like for me, getting called Premier Barbie or have people say, you know, she just, she's so vain. All she wants to do is have her picture taken. Like hmm. that was, that was the end. Which is, to be honest, every politician I've ever met. So. No, that isn't true. That is not true. If you go back and you look, Mo, at the, at the criticism that the opposition leveled um, level at women politicians, it is very different. Oh, no, no, no. Fair enough. I, I'm, I'm not talking about the criticism. I'm just saying like a lot of politicians obviously want to get their photo taken. They oh, want yeah. to be seen. That's, that's what I meant. Yeah, but yeah. when men do it, it's kind of like, well, exactly. He's yeah. a politician. But when a woman <laughs> does it, it means she's vain and she's she just wants to be looked at and she's just a pretty little thing who's being manipulated by men or maybe not a pretty little thing who's mad that she's not pretty enough or whatever, right? Mm -hmm. But it always, it always implies that women are shallow, which is... Um, when which when is, men do the exact same thing. Yeah, I completely men, men are just understand. doing their jobs, right? They're politicians yeah. who want to get their picture taken. And people can be cynical about it, but they don't. <laughs> they don't imply that the man is that less intelligent or less, you know, less has less depth. When you said frat boy behavior, when you wrote that, what did you mean specifically? Because right now it seems like you're talking about double standards and how men and women are characterized. You touched on sexual harassment. What else did you mean by frat boy behavior? You know, Mo, I wish I could take that back that that um description back because okay. i i have friends i know a lot of people who've been in fraternities and sororities and this doesn't describe them i just sort of threw it out there <laughs> sure. as a, because it's a commonly used yeah. term for for bad bad male behavior so um what i meant what i was trying to say is um behavior that is typical of men when they feel like there are no women around and they can get away with being um, insulting or, um, you know, uh, abusive, verbally abusive toward women, you know, mm -hmm. kind of, it's like a, it's an unpoliced atmosphere where there's no, there are no limits on male behavior. And right. for me, one of the things that I worked toward all the time, and I'm still working toward it, Mo, with the um, Women's Prosperity Project, um, in Canada now, it, what I want is I want women, more women to be around the table. Because one of the things that I discovered when I became the premier is almost half the people in my cabinet were women. Mm -hmm. And it was a, it changed the conversation. I mean, it's exactly mm -hmm. like having more uh, black indigenous people of color around the table. It changes the conversation. Mm -hmm. It changes how we talk. We talk about things more sensitively when we know the people who are being impacted uh, can hear us. Yeah. And so I think that's really what I was trying to say is you want an atmosphere where women are fully included in the conversation and then we all behave a little more respectfully of one another. And it, it, that I think transcends every sphere of our life, not just those moments when we're at the table. Sure. I want to be clear. I don't think the onus is on you or on any woman to clean up any man's behavior. And I can't imagine how difficult it is to speak up 
as you said, you know, you didn't even foresee that watershed moment happening because it is quite a difficult thing to do. But as a woman of influence, why not at this point call out specific people in politics whose pattern behavior was inappropriate or toxic over the years? Because some of these people might still be in politics. Yeah, well, you know, Mo, I might still do that, but not today. <laughs> not <laughs> we'll do today. that on the sequel. We'll do well, that on the sequel. You know, I think the thing for me, for me right now is I want to really step back from partisan politics and um, I want to, I don't want to interfere in the process and kind of reinsert myself back into really a partisan conversation. And mm-hmm. I don't know, I don't know how many people might think, that, oh, she's just saying that because she's still mad that she's not the premier or she wants to get back right. at you know, the NDP or whatever it happens to be. So, you know, I think there will be a time when I, I'm more comfortable um, kind of talking specifically about individuals, both outside my party and inside my own party. Mm-hmm. And I would also bookend that, Mo, by saying there I was also incredibly heartened by how so many men in my own caucus came around to support me when I was really in difficult times and um, who were there to stand beside me and say, no, I'm with her. And can you give a few of those men a shout out? I would say um, Rich Coleman was incredible in helping me and supporting me. Just, he said, you know, and he's such a tough guy, right? I didn't really, (laughs) I didn't really expect it from him. He was amazing. Um, Stockwell Day campaigned hard for me. Jerry St. Germain worked hard for me. Um, You know, I could, I could name a lot of the men who I worked with in politics who were just really, really incredibly supportive. So, you know, I am not, I'm really very much of the view that women need allies Mm-hmm. And I'm really heartened by the fact that I know that there are so many allies out there, but you're right. We need to tell our stories. They need to understand. And I think that one of the reasons I attracted um, so many allies to my side wasn't because really even I asked them, I think it was because they got so disgusted with what they saw going on around them hmm. and they saw how I was treated differently. And, yeah. you know, they kind of, they stepped up good for them. Right. All that said, Do you miss politics? Do you miss being the premier? I miss the fulfillment of it, Mo. That's what I miss. You know, it is the hardest job I will ever do in my life. I will never do something harder than that. Hmm. Because it's just really, you know, you've got you've got to balance a budget within, you know, 0.0001%, right? Yeah. $2 billion budgets more than that now. You've got to be constantly improving your health outcomes for everybody. You've got to be making sure kids are getting the education that's going to move them into an economy that's constantly changing with jobs you can't even imagine now. You've got to drum up trade and confidence around the world. You've got to negotiate with the federal government. You've got to make sure that our streets are safe from gangsters. Like, you know, it's a lot of stuff to do. Yeah. Super hard to get it all done. Didn't get it all done right. Nobody does, I don't think. But it's incredibly fulfilling to know that every day you're making, you have the potential to make such a big difference. So I miss that. There's a lot of stuff I don't miss though. I miss, I don't miss, you know, I like having my privacy back. My son is so happy now that I'm out of politics and he gets, you know, he said to me, you know, mom, I came home from school and I'm living with you now while this, you know, COVID pandemic's underway. And he said, if you had still been the premier, 
I would never be seeing you. Hmm. And that was a plot, you know? That's true though. Well, because being a mom is pretty fulfilling too. Yeah. Are you ever going to run for office again? Because there's always these whispers that you're going to run for the conservatives. Although I feel like you're more of a federal liberal. (laughs) Where's your, where's your head at in terms of federal politics? I'm not, uh, I'm not making any moves into federal politics. Um, You know, like, I'm not thinking about that right now. That's for sure. I'm establishing, I think, a pretty solid career in the private sector. And I'm learning a lot, which is, Mm -hmm. which is great, right? Like, it's a whole new challenge for me. Um, And I'm having a personal life, which is fantastic for me, too, um, and a family life. But, um, you know, the thing is, is that uh, I know lots of people wanted me to run for the conservative leadership because they thought that I would be able to move the conservative party back to the center. Mm -hmm. And, you know, I do think that that's really important. I think that we need to have Canada is better when all of our political parties are closer to the center and closer to each other. And then the dialogue is more civil Mm -hmm. and it's more Canadian. But when everybody's on hot button issues and the left and the right, it pulls the liberals to the left, the federal liberals to the left and, you know, to try and get the NDP vote. And it's just, we're back in kind of a two-party system. I don't think it's very, very healthy. So I would like to see the Liberal Party move closer to the center. I'd like to see the Conservative Party move a little closer to the center. And, you know, I mean, the NDP, they're always, they'll be the NDP, right? So, um, you know, I mean, where they are matters less, I think, only because, and I don't mean this in a partisan way, they're just so unlikely to, to form a national government. But where the Liberals and the Conservatives are really matters for mm-hmm. us direction as a country. And I'm really concerned about our economic direction right now. I have no idea what the plan is to pay down all the debt that we've accumulated. And we, you know, we needed to accumulate that debt um, in order to make sure we looked after people during the pandemic. And there'll be more debt as we, you know, go through the next wave, I'm sure. Mm -hmm. And, you know, you can't regret that. We shouldn't. It was the right thing to do. But I would say if governments had been setting money aside for uh, the bad times, which is what all of our parents advised us to do when we were growing up and leaving home. Mm-hmm. Um, and they did that themselves. The debt would probably be smaller. Now we'd be probably in a better position to recover from it. But I also think we really need to see the plans. Like how are we going to pay this debt off and grow our economy Um when every other country in the world is looking to try and finance debt, massive debt at the same time. And my worry, Mo, is that, um, you know, you're younger than I am. And um, my worry is this isn't a problem for five years from now, but it's a problem for people, millennials and Gen Zs and younger, because what's going to happen ultimately is if we can't find a way to get our finances back in order, as my generation can't figure that out, your generation and younger isn't going to have a healthcare system you can depend on. Like it's mm-hmm. as, it is, that is what it is. We will drive the health our healthcare system just off the cliff. And, you know, a generation of Canadians sacrificed a lot to build that. A generation of Canadians then came along and used, you know, will have used it all up. And there'll be a generation of Canadians who are sitting there empty handed going, well, what about me? Yeah. And I don't think that's fair. I agree with you in principle. I just think, don't we have to get over this health crisis first before we can really assess what the damage is? Oh, I totally agree with you. I do agree with you. But, you know, we have to do any smart government would be doing the two things at the same time, which is planning for the current, the crisis, spending whatever needs to be spent in the crisis 
Absolutely, that has to be done now. But at the same time, government should be planning for the recovery because the recovery is going to be on us in 2021. That's not far away. Sure, so yeah. What, what's, where is economic growth going to come from? Because, the, I mean, the, when I say pay down the debt, pay off the debt and the deficit, really what I mean is how are you going to grow the economy enough and bring it back enough so that we have the tax revenues we need to be able to make good on our promise to a, the generation that comes after people like me? Mm-hmm. And um, so that that planning needs to be happening at the same time. And I'm it may be happening, Mo. I'm just I haven't seen it. Um, and you know, not everybody in government is is working on just the pandemic, right? There are people doing other things, and they need to be doing that because we've got to make sure we come out of this as strong as we can. Premier Clark, I have kept you over time, but I have one more question before we wrap it up. How do you view your legacy as premier? And just on a personal level, what do you want to be remembered for? Um, I hope people will remember me first and foremost as someone who created a lot of jobs. And when I say jobs, I mean, you know, a job is a healthy, healthier, better functioning family. It's a, a job is an abil- a chance to own your own home. A, a job is a chance to, you know, be able to send your kids to, afford, you know, to afford the hockey equipment, especially if your kid mm-hmm. wants to become goalie or something like that. I mean, I think that I, I, we had a great a job creation, the best job creation record in, in BC's history. And so I hope people would remember me for that. I hope that people would look back and say, we made some decisions that were really hard, like getting Site C done after it was 50 years in the planning and no one had ever figured out how to get it off the drawing board and into the ground. I think that's a legacy. And I think LNG would be um, the third one, which is, you know, we created a brand new industry in the province. I think it's, you know, the new government um, has, you know, has probably decided they wanted to to slow down LNG, but boy, it sure would, I think, I think there's still an opportunity with a new government to build lots more natural gas opportunities, job opportunities for people. And the last one for me is the engagement with Indigenous people. I am, I, I, I became so passionate about recognizing the only way we are going to resolve issues and help, you know, support Indigenous communities to have fewer child apprehensions and more, uh, and fewer, lower suicide rates, less addiction, more employment, less incarceration, all those plagues that uh, Indigenous communities suffer with and live with Mm -hmm. every day as a result of the unfairness and the racism in our society, they will really only be solved if we can ensure that First Nations communities have access to be able to create wealth. Mm -hmm. And the way for them to create wealth is through resource development in this country and giving them a piece of it, a real piece of that revenue and ownership of of resource development. That's going to change the trajectory because we can apologize all we want and we should. We um, can ensure that the social programs are there and we should. But, you know, and we can do commissions and, you know, those give us important findings too. But ultimately, the only solution to poverty is wealth. And I'm, I remain really passionate about that. And I'm still working at that through Bennett Jones and some of the other work that I do in the province. But we signed more treaties with my government than any government in BC history. Hmm. We, we created more economic um, agreements with First Nations than any other government in history. We, the LNG deals, the mining deals, the forestry deals, 
All of that was intended to give First Nations a real piece of our economy so that they could be full participants, not junior partners, not government dependents. They don't want that. They want a future they create for themselves. They mm-hmm. want to they be self-directing, you know, going, going to bureaucrats in Ottawa looking for a handout so the bureaucrats can tell them what they want their community to look like. That is the worst kind of patronizing, you know, it, it's just... It's, it's not what Canadians want for each other. And it's certainly not what we should be in, continuing to entrench for First Nations people. They deserve a fair shot and they deserve better education. They deserve better health care and they deserve healthy communities where people have a chance to really work with and have the dignity of a paycheck. And that is something um, we got working on. It's a long, long process. And I have to say, if there's one thing I regret about not being premier, it's not being able to get that work finished. And on that note, first of all, I want to thank you for your public service. I don't think politicians, (laughs) whether you agree with them or not, people who hold elected office, I don't think they get enough credit. It is a tough job. So I want to thank you for your service as our 35th premier. I think you put in a really good case, particularly in the end, for a sequel. So we'll have to talk about that some other time. <laughs> okay. All right. But I'll I do... Oh, sorry. I was going to say, I, I'll come back when my book is published. Oh, perfect. <laughs> Get writing on it then. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I think that could be a while. I just want to express my gratitude for you being open to chatting with me. I know that we touched on a wide variety of sensitive topics, and I just appreciate your time If people want to follow you, if they want to follow your work post-premiership, are they allowed to do so? Where do they go? This is your chance to promote anything you'd like to, whether that's social media or whatever else. You bet. So Christy Clark for BC or Christy Clark BC. Um, I think my Twitter handle is Christy Clark BC. Um, Christy Clark BC. Yeah. You got to follow me on Twitter, by the way, Premier Clark. I will. I will. And then on my Facebook page, I have a public Facebook page where I, I basically repost everything from my private Facebook fa- Facebook page onto that. Okay. Although I do have to warn people, if you go to my public Facebook page, there's, there's a lot of trolling going on, just like on my Twitter page, but that's okay. That's, that's the internet. That's the internet. That's a, you got it, baby. That's the, way, that's, that's the way it is. And again, as we discussed, unfortunately, women always get it much harder in that sphere. Yes, yes. But if they go to my Twitter page today, they will see I've reposted four minutes of the uh, AOC speech. Okay, great. Want to see it? That's where to find it. Premier Clark, thank you so much. Thank you. It was a real pleasure, Mo. It was all mine. People, what a show. I've been dying to have her on the program and she did not disappoint. She is, of course, the 35th Premier of British Columbia. She is Christy Clark. And I am Mo Amir telling you, in the city where you can be anything, be colorful. Peace. <laughs>